Welcome to Pod Defend New Zealand. I'm speaking directly to all New Zealanders today. It's a political podcast where we chat about issues affecting Kiwis. Cases of COVID-19 to report in managed isolation in New Zealand. We talk to Kiwis from all sides of the political aisle. What has the government delivered? Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Steve O'Ely, and we hope you enjoy our show. Today we're interviewing Alan Duff. He's most famous for the book and then turned movie Once Were Warriors. But today I'm interviewing him for a different reason about his book A Conversation With My Country. We're also going to be talking with him about his own organisation Duffy Books and Homes and how this positively contributes to New Zealand society. Alan, it's great to have you on our show and thanks for being here. So what inspired you to write A Conversation With My Country? Well, I was commissioned uh, by the New Zealand Institute and the title came to me when I was in the bath because uh, I, sort of, I was anguishing about it. When I, or, you know, what, They wanted me to write something similar to um, uh, Hillbilly uh, Allergy uh, by a writer called P.D. Vance, I think it is. And I said, no, I don't write like anybody. I'm just, I just do my own stuff. And then when the title came to me, I, it was quite easy, really. You know, I just was able to sit down and, and basically continue the conversation I've been having with the country for 30 odd years. What, what, what do you think is the sort of main message that you were trying to, to get out to people? Oh, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of bleating and there still is. And when I read columns like I read, a week ago in the Herald, and, and it said that obesity is not a personal responsibility. I just thought, oh, have we all gone mad? When does pers- personal responsibility end? When does it start? And uh, if the person writing this could see that there is a cultural, shall we say, well, uh, where food is the most prominent thing in a culture, well, one of the most prominent things, then then you've, you've got to the heart of the problems. But if you, you know, so you've got to change the culture where they, where they, they just eat and eat and eat and stuff themselves. Uh, you know, they, they have five, six helpings. You can't do it. You just can't live like that. But we've sort of gone into this um, lying to ourselves mode and it seems to have gained the upper upper hand at the moment. And lone voices like myself, probably Bob Jones, and uh, a few others, not many, uh, are the only ones that are, are speaking out. I have to say, I agree with a, a lot that was written in your book. I do find that nowadays, everyone, especially in the media, they say what I feel is politically correct as opposed to what's actually going to achieve anything. I mean, how can a government be responsible individually for 4 million people, you know, at some point there needs to be some, regardless of whether it's someone's fault at the beginning, at some point the best thing for them to do is to take personal account of, uh, accountability for their lives. Yeah, and that's, that's been going on for a while now. Uh, it was it was rife when I first came out with Once Warriors. Uh, the academics thought they had the moral high ground. Uh, I came along and kind of dismantled that those those ivory towers and but you know they're back you know they're like weeds they're, they'll never go away 
You talk about at one point in your book uh, having a disagreement with a lot of the Maori academics. Did you ever manage to convince them of your way of thinking? If it's any indication, I, I haven't. I've rarely been invited to Maori uh, hui's and conferences, and I probably, to be fair, I'm not a group kind of person, so I probably wouldn't go. I don't like all of that hunting in packs and you know going around and big great big groups of you and. But they haven't come near me, and it's clear that I'm totally pro Māori uh, with the, you know with our with our Duffy Books and Homes program that's been going for 26 years plus. And also, it's an indication that they do not the Maori leadership themselves don't value reading. I'm not saying all of them don't value it, but too many of them don't. So, with um, once um, were warriors, um, you say in some ways it was a reflection of your own childhood. Did at any point you get tempted to join a gang? I was in a gang until my my auntie saw me in the street with a thing I had. Well, I was about 12, and I had rebel number three or something, or 21 or something on my back. And she came along and saw me and sneaked up from behind and grabbed me by the ear, told me to get on that bus and get home and get that damn shirt off, and that was the end of it. So it was just a bit of a – and again – I'm not a group kind of person, you know. I'm not a joiner. You can't write novels and be a joiner. Yeah. You know, you can't. I, I, I'm. I've got a particular thing about group thinking. I, I love teamwork, but I just think when the when the whole group is deciding your morals and your values, then um, yeah. Uh, generally, I don't. I don't prefer it. This might sound like a stupid question, but I assume you've read 1984. I did, but years and years ago. Because I'm actually just reading it at the moment, and um, it's they talk about group think. I think you actually mentioned it in your book. I quoted him: "The more the more truth you tell, the more they hate you." <laughs> and I've I've found that over the years. You know, it took um, it took from 1991 until 2020 for me to be invited back to the Wellington Writers Festival. And when you think I'm published all over the world. You're probably one of our most famous writers in New Zealand. Probably, yeah. It's it's kind of staggering, really, that they they should ignore me for 29 years. So, um, how did you escape the the world you grew up in, the sort of the one that you mentioned in Once Were Warriors? No, well, it wasn't entirely my household. wasn't entirely Once Were Warriors. My mother was definitely a Jake the Mus. But my father had a university degree and was a scientist at the Forestry Research Institute in Rotorua. So, you know, I came from a, on my father's side, I came from a, a distinguished family of, uh, I don't know, not academics, but certainly great achievers intellectually, as, as I quoted in my, from my grandfather's book of um, columns um, and, and various other publications. You know, granddad was the, founding editor of the Christchurch oh sorry he was the editor of the Christchurch Press and the founding editor of the Listener so I had some pretty good genes there so I and I'm forever you know eternally uh, grateful for those genes as well so it wasn't so much an escape I think it was an escaping the the, the mindset that I was that I and anybody in, in those sort of situations gets themselves in, into all of life is just an attitude Believe me. And what was the sort of mindset at the time? Well, no, I just wanted to be a tough guy like, you know, the people that I was attracted to. I just wanted to be a tough guy. 
And, uh, you know, there was a fight going. I'd go to the fight. And I'd much rather go and babysit my little one-year-old granddaughter, quite frankly. But when you're young and you're, you're raised on that, you know, on that whole culture of it's manly to be like this, then you're sort of in denial that you've even got a brain, that you've, that you've got an artistic gift. And so for years and years, I was in denial about that. That's why I wasn't published until, until I was 40. It wasn't the, it wasn't the easiest of, of roads, but nor was it meant to be. I think there's a common thing in a lot of cultures where um, it's not seen as manly to do anything sort of creative or, t- or artistic. Yeah, very much so. And, and, and in the, the Māori culture that I grew up in, it was definitely not. You know, I was always, me and my two older brothers were always, always first in the class when they had streaming in those days. And, um, and man, that you know, we used to get called, you know, oh, you little clever dicks and who do you think you are, all this sort of thing. <laughs> it was pretty grim. Yeah. And I had a fight. Um, I got put into 3A. I was, when I first went to high school, they, they used to stream me from 3A to about 3I. Was it Hamilton Boys? No, no, this is at Rotorua Boys. Because you went to Hamilton later on, didn't you? Yeah. And then a mate of mine, I, I just went up to him and said, oh, how's your class? Because, you know, we all come from intermediate. And he said, piss off and go back to your honky mates. So I belted him. And um, we sort of, well, that, that, that was the end of the friendship. It was quite a shocking thing, really. I realised then, in, in a puerile sort of way, that it is a shameful thing to, to have an intellect with that class of person. But that didn't stop me running with the, with the tough guys. And he ended up in the mongrel mob, and uh, about a year ago he was murdered So oh, wow. by, a fellow, by a fellow mongrel mob member. So all those years later, that's how his life ended up. And the only interviews he ever had were by detectives in the, in the police stations. Yeah. You know, so. And you guys grew up together. We grew up together. And in fact, I had a dream. We were living in Havelock North and I woke up and I said to my wife, I dreamt about this person and everyone was afraid of him. And I said, I'm not afraid of him. And I went up and I hugged him and you wouldn't believe it. That afternoon I was coming out of the Havelock North post office and I heard my nickname called out, which only people that have grown up with me call me by. And I said, hey, and we hugged. And I said, I had a dream about you, and here you are. And he was, and he was with two uh, prison officers. They were, they had him out on day parole, getting him used to, you know, being on the outside, because uh, he'd served a couple of long sentences. And he spotted me, and he said, "Stop, that's my cousin." We're sort of second cousins or something. And the, the officer said, "Listen, if you do anything, that's Alan Duff. If you do anything to him." You're just going to get a, another big sentence. And he said, no, it's my cousin. And then, of course, they, they they were standing right immediately behind him, ready to pounce. And then when they saw us hug, they were pretty relieved. So it's a funny old world. So um, one of the things that's a big sort of um, part of your book is you talk about um, the victim mentality and how it's negatively affecting Maori and New Zealand. Um, can you sort of elaborate on that? Yeah, well, I'm well aware that there's, especially in attitudes, there's, there's, there is and there is racism, and there has been racism. But I'm not so sure that you know when I see the front page of a of a local newspaper where a woman has got um, bowel cancer and she's 
she's blaming the system and she's saying that it's racist because they're not screening Māori and Pacifica at an earlier age because we've got a we've got a way more likelihood of getting bowel cancer at an earlier age. I agree that they should screen us earlier, but to go and blame the system, it's it's become the sort of the go-to place for everybody. And I just I don't the problem when you when you're laying off blame and absolving yourself, you, you don't actually fix a problem. And um, I'm not buying into it. I think I think I read um, somewhere that um, even if something is someone else's fault, if you take personal responsibility for it, it's going to help your situation regardless because you're going to end up better off if you think that it's your problem to solve. Yeah, and that's that's my whole attitude to all of to all of life. Really, it's you know that's for personal problems. That's for all sorts of problems. If you you've got to take responsibility for it, and and don't worry, I was dragged kicking and screaming into that attitude by various people that you know, said to me, why don't you bloody get your shit together and stop? You know, I, I, I know negative negativity. I, I lived it. And I know that the all of the lack of progress and and frustration and everything else, it all dispersed the minute I took responsibility for myself. And as I said in the book, when I gave up smoking cigarettes 30, 33 or 32 years ago, everything has started to happen for me. I completed a novel. And not only that, I was prepared to take criticism and advice from my agent at the time, uh, Chris Ells. And then once Warriors got published and, you know, our whole lives changed. And that was all through taking responsibility for myself. No more smoking. You've got a baby on the way and your wife-to-be is a non-smoker and you owe it to other people and it's not about you, it's about other people. And I think if we all took that attitude, we'd, we'd all be infinitely um, better people for it. Yeah. Do you think there's been any improvement in the welfare situation in the last 30 years in New Zealand? Not from the reports that I've been reading, but uh, on the on the um, positive side, as we've just seen, um, 20% of the new cabinet are Māori, uh, which is a good thing. And... Uh, if you add the Pacifica ministers as well, it's disproportionate to our numbers in a very, very positive, positive way. Yeah, we are making progress. We that assertiveness has been marvellous, and so you know, I just hope it just keeps going in that direction. You know, it's really good to see. It's always almost embarrassing, really, when you see the um, um, some of the previous governments where it's you know the entire front bench benches white people um, for such a diverse country, obviously with Māori and Pacifica, but also, you know, um, all our immigrants from Asia and India and all over the world. Yeah, and I, but I notice nobody complains when um, the All Blacks are, and the Black Ferns are, are, are heavily stacked with, with brownies. It's, it's suddenly all right then, you know. If 70% of the team are, are brown, then it's okay as long as we, as long as we win. If we don't win, then it's, oh, yeah, well, you know, the trouble with that, too many Polynesians in the team. I really don't even like watching the All Blacks with other people. I'll, I'll watch it with my rugby mates who have played at the highest level, but otherwise I don't like watching it because, you know, it's like bums. Everyone's, you know, there's like opinions are like bums. You know, everyone's got one. And, you know, we are a nation of selectors, and yet that phone, the, our phones have never rung from the New Zealand Rugby Board saying, 
um, Alan or Steve, would you like to be the new All Black coach? Yet every single one of us thinks that we know better and who should be in the team. It's quite astonishing, really. Yeah. And I refuse to take part in any of those kind of um, conversations. So I just don't watch it with anybody. I mean, we're one of the best sports teams ever in the All Blacks, and yet people are so – everyone thinks they know best in terms of who we're selecting in the team. Yeah, and you'll find that the ones who know best are the ones who played least. So if you if you sit down and watch it with ex All Blacks, as I've you know done quite a quite a lot, then you uh, you get a different insight into the game as well. They're looking at the moves. They're saying, "Oh, that was a good move." Oh, I don't know, you know, the break it broke down there. You know, somebody should be coming around, but they're not screaming names and saying, you know, dump them and. And it was like Sonny Bill. I mean, Sonny Bill's one of the best players we've ever had. But the criticism that he he came under was just incredible. But he he was bigger than that. He rose above them all. Um, so in your book, you place a high emphasis on education for sort of fixing the welfare mentality. Um, can you tell us a bit about that and about um, Duffy Books and Homes? Well, the welfare... You know, really, it, it really is just giving them fish and not teaching them how to fish. That's as, It's as simple as that. I agree that welfare is needed for a, a lot of people that have suffered from mental illness, if you're in a wheelchair, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, single mums, you know, they can't. It's impossible to, to get by without. You can't raise a child without it. But the ones who have made it a lifestyle, uh, they're never going to change. And we're seeing it, I didn't say so in the book, but we're seeing it in how they behave when they're put into motels in towns like my my hometown of uh, Rotorua. And, the, you know, they're having parties and they're, they're having big fights and they're having domestics and, and they're abusing people and they, they are just, they're a, a welfare-created monster. But they're not the majority. I looked on, on YouTube the other day and it was all of, it was uh, in Sheffield, England, and the the drunkenness and the low lifes there. It's it makes this country, even the worst of this country, it makes them look like saints. They're just vomiting, violent, um, welfare addicted uh, oafs, and the women are just as bad. That the girls are just fishwives, and you know it's 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 awful. So it's not. It's not a it's not a Maori thing. I think anybody on that's on welfare and gets dependent and then entitled to it uh, becomes the same monster. It's an an inevitable outcome. I feel like it's a conversation that um, politicians are too scared to talk about and just bury their heads in the sand. Um, and at best, maybe increase the welfare every few years but no one's um, willing to admit that we're not fixing the problem and I kind of get the impression. So my parents moved to New Zealand in the early 90s um, from South Africa. Um, I get the impression that welfare's got worse in the 25 years that we've been in New Zealand, at least worse in terms of the numbers of people that are on welfare. Yeah, I haven't I haven't looked at the numbers. Um, again, I sort of wanted to focus on the, on, on the positives, but I know because we've got 100,000 kids on our programme and that they are all the lowest uh, decile schools in the country. I think we've got ninety-eight or ninety-nine percent of the of the decile one schools, primary schools in the country. So we are dealing with 
So dis R1 is the rating uh, for your. So if you're dis R1, uh, your your score is maybe the average income is um, thirty eight thousand a year. And if you're dis R10, you're in the best parts of Tauranga or or wherever, and the home income is a hundred thousand. And we've been dealing with these kids at that from that lowest um, socioeconomic category. And they're absolutely wonderful to deal with. So they've got potential. Uh, but sadly, you know, too often the, the parents are uh, either in itinerant situations and most certainly uneducated. A lot of them, if not most of them, are unskilled. So they don't have the skills to teach their children. On Saturday night, um, my daughter and her partner went out uh, for Halloween you know, drinks, and I looked after the one-year-old. And part of her routine is, you know, I mean, obviously she's got to be loved and, and stimulated and everything else, but the, but the the night ends with she's been read a book and she's only one. And so by the time, time she's three, she will be able to read off by heart, literally scores if not hundreds of books because she's exposed to to the written word. When she starts school, if she if we sent her to a poor area, to one of our Duffy schools, she would be so far ahead of them. She would wonder what on earth was happening. Well, why why can't these? Because these kids are not exposed until we came along, uh, and we we're not in the position to be able to give them books before they go to school. Even though we're in nearly three hundred early childhood centres, but our resources are limited. If we want to give out one extra book to a hundred thousand kids. We're going to find another half million a year just to give them one extra book. So, just explain to our listeners how, how the how the Duffy Books and Homes organisation works. Well, I got the idea when I went to a school and thought, "Why am I here as a celebrated author when I know damn well these kids won't have any books in their homes? They wouldn't have a clue what an author is." And sure enough, I asked them to put their hands up. Who's got books? And no hands went up at the whole school. I said, "I'll be back." And I made my first mistake. I, I had a syndicated newspaper column, in, including in my own hometown of Havelock North, and I asked my readers to come and donate their books if their children had grown up, and I filled a trailer with them, and I drove it to the school, and the kids just looked at it and didn't bat an eyelid. They were not interested. And then it occurred to me that they had only ever got hand-me-downs Everything was secondhand for them. Everything was used. No, there was no magic there. And it, it was then that it occurred to us that they they have, they have to have brand new books to excite them. So then we, we changed it to getting it, getting them brand new books. And, of course, then we had to have a lot of money. And we had to go and raise money. And one of the original uh, funders was the founder of Main Freight. And he's now my closest friend. And... Um, He's been incredible. And, you know, without money, you can't do any of this. You can't do this stuff. It's hard enough raising money as it is. I'm lucky because the, the profile of Once the Warriors, we had a dynamic person uh, that was managing it for a while, for a few years, uh, Christine Furniho. She was great at all that, and she certainly contributed to the program. But the aim so they get, on average, seven books a year, first year primary school. And so a brochure goes to every single child in every classroom 
according to their age group and they choose their books. So they, they choose two books, two or three books a year, and which and then so every book is duly delivered with a sticky label inside saying this book belongs to Janaya or you know whatever the, their names are. So it's about ownership. It's about magic in the in the book um, being brand new, and it's about freedom of choice. Obviously, the five year olds need help from the teachers, the five and six and seven year olds. Uh, they need help and guidance from the teachers as to what books they should choose. And the books are entirely child friendly. They're not. They're from Scholastic, and they're not. Um, you know, we're not trying to teach them Shakespeare or poetry, or we're just trying to get them interested in the whole concept of reading because uh maori and polynesians don't come from a reading culture we had we didn't have the written word do you face any issues or um, are aware of any issues with i guess looking at i can imagine for some of those households the kid gets the book from school and they're all excited about it and then they take it home and the parents potentially are like oh you know like readings for losers throw the book away or just don't want to have a bar of it no, we. I, I I did worry about that initially, but um, in fact, we've got the parental support because, you know, we've been around for so long and we're always delivering, and we, you know, their kids are coming home excited and, oh, look at my new Duffy book, Mum, and you know, and a lot of them don't have dads, you know, quite a big percentage. There's no dad at home, so it's generally Mum or and the grandparents, and uh, and the way we keep the culture of of book reading alive is that every week we have a every single classroom has a ceremony called court being good and the teacher has spotted somebody helping somebody who fell over and hurt her knee or something and then she will read out uh the name of that child and why they've been uh, chosen as a court being good kid and then they go up to a table full of books and they can choose a book as their reward as their reward so that way we keep the culture alive of, of the importance of reading. Every single week, kids can earn a book and they still get excited about hearing their name called out and they still get excited about being able to go up to the table and, and choose their own book as a reward. So, Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, and we send role models uh, out to the schools. Uh, we've got a, two full-time travelling theatre groups that put on a play, a Duffy play, and, you know, they've got 500, over 500 schools to go to in a year, so 250 schools each. It's a big ask. Yeah, and then we've got caught being good parents, caught being good grandparents. And that's usually the kid will come home and come to school and say, well, my granddad uh, reads books to me. Uh, that You know, they, they love all that. So uh, And so because we're recognising the family and the uh, I think there's a lot of trust. And over the years, I've had gang gang members come up to me in the street and give me a hug and say thanks for the books from you know my other my either my kids or my nephews and nieces. And so they know that we we're, we're delivering and we don't have a political motive or we don't have a monetary motive. None of us trustees are paid anything. We're just there for the kids. So. And you know, so we're 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 approaching the 14 million mark now. So you know, 14 million books is a I think it's more than all of the books in the libraries uh, put together. So, you know, it's a lot of books we've given out over the last 26 years. No, it's an awesome organisation. Um, on the comment of um, gangs and that guy coming up to you, I've sort of noticed in the news in the last sort of two or three years, I feel like there seems to be more 
incidents of gangs and gang members doing positive things in communities than there used to be? Yeah, I, I've been noticing that. My only reservation about that is that that culture of violence is, when you've got a culture of violence, you, you, you're finished. I, I believe in warriorhood. I, I'm very proud of being a warrior. I, I don't want to be, you know, I don't back down to anyone. But children cannot be exposed to violence. It just wrecks their minds. I also think it's a bit cowardly to be joining a gang. Well, what do you want to go and join a gang for? What do you need all the other people around you? They want to, if they want to join as a group, well, tell them to go and join a bloody rugby or rugby league team and then turn up at training every Tuesday and Thursday and then go and play in the bloody rain and the sleet and the hail and the, you know, that's real, man. Yeah, you can show you you're a tough guy and um, playing a game of rugby, making your tackles. Well, you know, you have a look at Adi Sabir. He's the loveliest, loveliest person. Uh, you know, I've seen different clips of him and... He's so caring, you know, for the community. And yet, you know, there's no one harder than Artie Savier. You can be hard out there. Michael Jones was as hard as nails. Ronnie Clark, uh, you know, Caleb Clark's dad, he was he was hard. But off the field, uh, Ronnie is just a, a teddy bear. And so is his son, you know. I mean, on the field, my God, he's good. Oh, he's good. And, you know, on that, on that question of the rugby thing is um, – the culture, I think it's. I think that's probably behind a lot of the the change in our in our the, the nation's outlook. There are just so many brown people that are in the All Blacks and in our netball squads, and you know, um, and and representing us at athletics, etc. That you have to start saying, well, you know, maybe I could learn a bit more about them and try and understand them a bit better. Because right now, I don't think there's that. There's a lot of moaning and and blaming and, you know, I'm the poor victim kind of mentality, but there's not a lot of, there's very little hatred, which is a good sign. I mean, there's more, there's more hatred for in a, in a Trump gathering, you know, than, than, than all of the brown people in New Zealand put together. And as I pointed out, there has not been one assassination, not one act of violence uh, by any, any uh, Maori or Pacifica radical. And all the settlements have come about through just sheer dogged um, persistence, and and they've, they've virtually all turned them into into fortunes with the settlements. So clearly, when you put something right and you do it in a in a in a respectful way, then uh, and then if we went and blew it, if our leaders went and blew it, and then started blaming the government, saying, "Well, you made us like this. You made us profligate, or you made us." unskilled at handling money but they're doing the complete opposite the trust the tribal trusts all over the country are just going gangbusters i grew up in hamilton and um uh, the best one i can think of is the tainui settlement for um the area of land that's now called the base which is a massive um, shopping center i know the base and it's and it's just doing so well yeah and look so look what they did with it they, you know, in the, the old in the old days, they might have just leased it out to Parkia Farmers or something, you know. But not this time. They put that huge, huge um, industrial retail space on it, and it generates massive uh, rental income. So you know, it's it's a wonderful thing. And talking about Hamilton, I mentioned Hamilton Boys High in my thing when the little delegation of three guys approached me at Hamilton Boys High and said, "Oh, you and the boys home." Yep. Well, you're not welcome at this school. So I whacked one and then whacked the other, and then the third one took off. 
And so I never got I never got bullied again, but I was a, I was the loneliest kid in the whole school. Every lunchtime I just used to go down by the creek. There was a little creek at the back, and I just used to go down there and be on my own for the lunch, you know, for the lunch break. And that you know, that it was clearly racist as well, but they didn't prove very tough in the finish. I think the, um, there's definitely a changing mentality in schools. Um, I'm, you know, like um, pretty much every school now has their own haka and there's a lot, I feel like there's a lot more sort of um, bringing in the, the Māori culture into schools. Yes, fantastic. It's just fantastic. So there's, yeah, there has been some great changes, but I think thinking people in private will have their reservations too. You know, they'll say, yeah, but I'm not so sure about you know, I mean, I voted for for Labour. I'm a big fan of Jacinda's, and but I think there's an awful lot of ministers that are pretty of pretty average competence, um, if not incompetence, because you know you plucked you plucked sort of very average people and put them into a position where they've got budgets of a billion or five billion or whatever, and you have a look because if you have a look at when they're all gathered on the steps of Parliament, the newbies, you know. And you think you're just a bunch of ordinary people, you know, less than ordinary. You can see it. I mean, all of us, all of us know when an ordinary person walks into the room. We know because we don't notice. Humans can spot the players. Humans can spot the ones that count. And, you know, very few of them, very few of them matter much in my eyes. And then they take these um, massive billion-dollar budgets and they're in charge of education or, I mean, the most recent one is um, Chris Hipkins, who's got no healthcare background, quickly taking over the um, Ministry for Health after David Clark stuffed up. To be fair uh, with Chris, that they they gave it to Chris because he is competent. And it's uh, I don't know why he's taken both still. Or has he got both now? I don't know. I haven't actually seen. Um, yeah, I think, I, think he's, I think he's still got both. It's because he's competent and there's no one else that can do it. He is competent. He's a good guy to deal with and one of the few, uh, I have to say. And so is Grant Robertson. Very, very, very good listener. John John Key was a good listener. Isn't that a mark of a good leader, someone who listens well? I think it's a necessary mark. If you don't listen, uh, sure. I'm not saying you can't be a success, but you can't build a team that, that respects and loves you. And, and nor can you be efficient, I don't think. A couple more questions is um, how do we, in your own words, change the conversation for Māori? We've sort of already talked about it to a degree. But... Oh, no, you know, I, I wouldn't be putting all the emphasis on, on Māori. I think there's enough there now. I don't really need to add my two pen worth there. I think I should be, or we should be, looking at what, you know, what we can do as a country. How can we... How can we have a vetting process for our politicians where you've got to have a minimal qualifications qualification? In France, you, you have to, in France you have to have graduated from one of the you know one of about three prestigious universities uh, that have got the highest, most demanding academic standards before you can be in politics. And that's whether you're left or right or center. They are uh, educated. And when you get educated people, and I'm not saying that France is doing it all perfectly and we're not, but when you get somebody who's just a former trade union delegate or leader, you know, or and a teacher and a, and a failed lawyer, 
and the, and their 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 ministers, uh, that bothers me. If you had a company, you would not employ them, let alone let alone make them one of the one of the leaders, make them one of the executives. That's just that's just a nonsense. They are not executives, mind you. There's a lot of executives that are not executives either. They're just bloody highly paid, overpaid, you know, average people who've kind of clawed their way up. So, yeah, it's not doesn't apply to just to politicians. Just to play devil's advocate, um, I guess from the average person's um, point of view, they would say, oh, if, if we only let people that are really highly educated into politics then we're only going to have the elites representing New Zealand and not the average person representing New Zealand. So how can the elites possibly know what it's like for the average person? I, I think I think they've got a greater chance of, of, of knowing what it's like for the average person because once you make a, an average person an elite, the way they behave is, is that they feel entitled. They feel entitled to fly business class and stay in five-star hotels and be treated like very important people. Whereas I think if you get, if you if the elite were, were there, I think when you've got more intelligent people at the helm, we've probably got a, a better chance of it. And I don't mean just academically achieved. I mean, we, we need to invite entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs will go and give their time for free. They would just say, yeah, look, you want to fix the health system? I'll show you how to do it. You know, you go to you go to people like um, like Bruce Plessard and Don Braid of, of Main Freight. They'll tell you how to fix all sorts of problems, and they won't charge you for it. And I, I think there are a lot of people around that are like that. I think uh, Rod Fife. Uh, you know, I don't think the Prime Minister treated him too well. I don't know what happened there. I'm just sure one of Rod Fifers. He used to be used to be in charge of Air New Zealand, and he went there to advise them on how to kind of handle their way through this COVID and, and I think he was ignored. He was he left in frustration. And you know, he wasn't he wasn't charging either for his time. And when you've got people that are there because they're they're consultants, then they've got a vested interest. They're actually there. If they're there as a consultant on a five hundred bucks an hour, all they want to do is get as many hours billed as they can. Like lawyers. Lawyers talk in terms of every six minutes. You charge for every six minutes. How mean-minded is that to say if you spent six minutes on this phone call, you've got to charge out at you know one tenth of the of the hourly rate? It's just just nonsense. And it's you know if I was going to try and improve society, I would be saying to the people who are only to the people who are capable of listening, is that we should all be a bit more inclusive and we should all be con- contributing. And, and the, those who have been made more capable or more gifted or whatever or luckier, I think, you know, I, I would never pass a law to force them to, but I think it would be marvellous if we could get input from them. But they might well say, well, hold on a minute. When I get into a, an aeroplane and I see some Joe average minister sitting in the same business class as me and drinking champagne and, you know, everything else, they might resent that. They might say, well, why, why should I go and give my time and for nothing when these people are living life off the hog? But there are some, there are some people in this country that are capable, more than capable of contributing. Uh, Stephen Tyndall is an obvious one. Alan Gibbs is an absolute star. 
Uh, Bruce Plessis, in my view, is the greatest New Zealander of all time. Uh, and his company, Main Freight, uh, just, just a staggering success. Uh, 40 straight years of upward curve. And that's, that's how it's been. Profit sharing with, with, the, with the team. Uh, being green and yeah, just the whole their whole attitude to to business is is spectacular. Well, somebody like Bruce happily give the advice to to this new government, but would they would they take it? Uh, Arthur Conan Doyle said years ago, "Mediocrity knows nothing higher than itself," and that's a frightening thing, you know, because it's. It actually means that you can walk in the room and you are infinitely and measurably more talented than them, and they cannot they cannot see it. They cannot see it. They cannot process in their minds that you, Steve, are smarter than me, Alan. You, you just, they just can't do it. And yet they get themselves into positions, like there's a whole new batch of ministers now, and they're going to be feeling pretty damn pleased with themselves. They're all preening themselves, and even after the election, and I just looked at those people and I thought, my God, why are they all so pleased with themselves? What have, what have they done? They got elected, sure. You know, you can be happy, but it, it worries me that they're so pleased with themselves. I think one of the biggest issues in politics is that the people that are getting elected, it's a popularity contest. People that are good at um, campaigning and saying, look, this is what I'm going to do well for you. But I don't think there's a good correlation between people who are very electable and people who are necessarily going to do the best job because some of the people that would make the best leaders in this country might be quite introverted, might not be the sort of people who would campaign well. Yes. Oh, of course. Of course. I mean, I, you know, I think I could contribute myself. I mean, I, I've written to uh, Andrew Little and I said, well, I, I've been locked up. I know what it's like. I can tell you what's going what's going on there and what's going wrong, but I never got a reply from him. And I said, uh, no charge. The only charge would be is if the if his department could sponsor a few of our schools. But how long would I last in Parliament? I'd be I'd be arrested for assault on the first day. <laughs> I just wouldn't put up with it. So you know. I think you mentioned it in the book about um, these uh, um, academics sort of um, telling people how it is, having never actually experienced living in those sort of situations? No, they haven't. They haven't. And, the, and, the, and the, the scary thing is that they're still not coming to people with the life experiences. Um, they're just, you know, I, I went to corrections and, you know, they were, they, they loved me. And then, I oh know, I got a phone call from the guy who, who, who really was a big fan of mine. And then he said, I'm sorry, Alan, um, the politics has gotten away and the great big bureaucratic machine of corrections with 30,000 staff has just said no. There's, they've put up a big, big wall, steel wall against you. And that was the end of that. And just like this book was not reviewed by any of the left-wing publications in this country. And that's a shame. I mean, it should have been reviewed in the Listener and North and South and, and all of the newspapers around the country. It's an important, it, it is an important book. And even even if I did write it, I think it's saying important things. I mean, it's saying what a lot of people are thinking. Um, but currently we're in a stage in New Zealand with the left-wing media where there's only one school of thought that is allowed. Um, but people need to be exposed to different points of view, I think. But they control it. 
if they control the conversations, that's that's what you do. That's what all regimes do. If you can, can if you can get a control of the conversation, like they do in Egypt, like they do, they're doing in countries all over the world. If you control the, the conversation, then there can only be one set of notions and uh, perceptions that is that are fed to the public. And after a while, the public be, begin to believe it because they're the public. Sounds very much like the group think mentioned in 1984. It is. It's sad. I just wanted to say thanks for um, thanks for agreeing to to talk to me. Um, I've really enjoyed the conversation and really did um, enjoy the book. It's really nice or good to hear um, your perspectives, having sort of grown up in that environment um, and seeing, you know basically saying what a lot of people are thinking, but a, a lot of people are too scared to think, uh, to say sorry in a public conversation. Okay. Thank you very much, Steve. I look forward to reading your next book. Oh, no, it's TV series coming next. Alan wouldn't tell us any more about the TV series, um, but you can find his book, A Conversation With My Country, at any good bookstore in New Zealand. So you can find out more about Alan and his work at www.booksandhomes.org.nz So, Alan, once we've found your organisation, what can we do to help? You know what? If you sponsored a school, it, wouldn't, it doesn't cost much, a couple of grand a year, $40 a week, uh, 10 coffees a week to sponsor a little school. You, know, you wouldn't get a big school for that. That was celebrated Kiwi author Alan Duff. Don't forget to subscribe to Pod to Feed New Zealand for future episodes. See you next time. Thanks for tuning in to Pod Defend New Zealand. You can find us on Twitter at NZ underscore pod or Instagram at NZ underscore pod. If you're feeling extra generous, please give us five stars on the podcast app. Kia ora.